0: to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: the biggest thing on investing is that people think it's really complicated and that you need to be a expert stock picker to invest and that you need lots of money to invest. So I absolutely spend a lot of time dispelling that myth and actually spending time talking to people about how, you know, investing is just a means to an end, not an end in itself, that it's about your goals and that lifestyle that you want to create or that legacy you want to create or the business you want to start, whatever it is, and aligning your investing to your goals to facilitate the outcomes that you're trying to achieve.
3: G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Today, we're going to be talking about investing and love. Can they live together? My guest is Betsy Westcott, who has been on the podcast before and who is a welcome returnee. Hi, Betsy.
2: Hi, Phil. Great to be back.
3: It's great to have you here. So a lot's happened since we last spoke. You were with the Ladies Finance Club, although you're still an ambassador for them. Mm-hmm. Then in the corporate world, and you're about to start a new job at FUPAY, but above all, you're a financial wellness coach. Is this what your life is like right at the moment?
2: I think um, I'm one of those typical millennials. I'm, I'm a bit of this and a bit of that. So I've got my day job, which I love and enjoy, and um, I'm really excited about the work I'm going to do with FUPAY. But there's this part of me that loves teaching people about money, helping them understand it and make the most of it. And I just can't seem to turn away from it. I love being a financial coach and it brings me so much joy, but I don't want it to be my everyday job and have to be this thing that I rely on for income. I want it to be something joyful. So that's why I do it as a side hustle. And it's such a pleasure.
3: Yeah, it's a great thing these days, isn't it? Side hustles. (laughs) Side
2: hustles. And it also makes me sound very cool and trendy.
3: (laughs) So we're going to talk about money and love. How well do money and love go together? It's uh, rarely finance at first sight, is it?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's probably like not the first question you ask on your first Bumble or Tinder date, like Mm -hmm. talk to me about your money beliefs or money mindset or how much do you make. But it does play a really significant role in the quality of our relationships and sometimes the success of our relationships or maybe the undoing um, because it is the number one reason cited for relationship breakdown, misalignment of money values or disagreement or money stress. So whilst it's probably not the first thing we think about on our checklist of finding things in a partner, I would really love people to add it to the things that they consider. How well aligned are we in terms of our financial behaviours?
3: I mean, it's very hard. I mean, if you're suddenly falling for someone, (laughs) this is not the first thing that's in your mind, is it?
2: It's probably not. Um, Do you know what? It's something that will naturally come up anyway. I mean, just think about it. Your first date, navigating that. Who's going to pay? You know, is it uh, an expectation if you're a lady? do you expect him to pay? Do you expect to pay yourself? Or is it, you know, setting a tone of equality? We both want to contribute. And that could actually be the first money conversation you have, albeit not too serious, but it is something that should come up regularly in your relationship. And the best way to have really positive outcomes in terms of love and money is to have really positive conversations and, and healthy conversations around love and money.
3: Should women possibly have a test that they keep in mind for for when they're meeting blokes?
2: Um, I mean... As
3: an indicator. As an
2: indicator. I think what you'd want to be looking for is um, like any red flags that might be there. So, you know, someone um, who gets really defensive if you bring up money or sharing bills, that could be a red flag. Um, Someone who won't talk to you about money, someone who might try to control your money or things like that, those might be some red flags. So I don't have a specific test, but certainly there are some red flags to look out for. Um, But what I would say is if they... They could plan to bring up the topic of money early in the relationship so it could be something simple like you know let's plan for a holiday together and that would be a cause for you to bring up okay how are we going to do this together um, will we both save together how will we fund it and there'll be natural progressions in your relationship where it'll make sense to talk about money. So if you're moving in together, starting to share bills, starting to pay for groceries, utilities, that's a really great point in time to talk about money. And then as your relationship gets more serious, so if you are getting engaged, if you are getting married, having a family, very important to talk about the finances then because those babies aren't cheap. Um <laughs> So at those point in times, have a think about, you know, how are you going to come together as a financial team? What roles will you play? How do you manage your money together on the day to day? What goals do you want to set together? And in having those conversations, you are setting yourself up for a very healthy relationship, at least in terms of the finances.
3: And there's also that thing, there's a lot of women who these days are earning more than men. Yeah, and some men don't like that, do they?
2: That's a tricky one. And it that's, is tricky. <laughs> that probably comes down to that compatibility piece. You know, how does your partner feel if you earn more money? And it is becoming a more common scenario. And I guess that comes down to you know what roles are you playing in the relationship. I think it comes down to how are you coming together as a financial team? Some people want to maintain quite a lot of independence when it comes to their money. Some people want to join forces, pool resources, do things together, and some do a little bit of both. But again, it all comes down to those conversations, which I get can be really hard. But if you are having a money conversation, I think the best place to start is like, know thyself what are your money habits what are your money behaviors are you a spender a saver an accumulator? like there's there's heap of like little money quizzes out there that you can take to help you identify your money personality there's one on my website if anyone wants to check (laughs) it out but you know know yourself and then talk about you know start with something really positive like our goals and what are we working towards and then go into something like how are we going to manage on the day-to-day will we you know put money into a joint account and use that to manage the finances or do we want to keep things quite separate and sort of do the transfer back and forth or do we want to pull everything together and have complete transparency so always just my biggest tip for money conversations is um Pick your timing. (laughs) Often, like frame the conversation. Like, what am I trying to get out of this conversation with my partner? And always go with an open mind and curiosity. I want to understand. I want to become a team. How can we really align here? And if if it's too hard to do yourself, enlist the help of like a coach or a relationship counselor or a financial advisor. Because, like honestly, unless someone's role modelled these behaviours for you, it can be a little bit tricky to do on your own. So enlist the help of someone um, who can help facilitate that conversation for you. You've
3: got to be careful. Guys have got such fragile egos. <laughs> I know. <laughs>
2: I did an article about this recently and I was sort of explaining that um, asking someone, you know, what are your personal finances? What are you bringing to this relationship? Is kind of like asking someone to derobe and stand naked, ready for inspection. It's a little confronting. So <laughs> do take care. <laughs> be yeah. thoughtful.
3: <laughs> yeah, my wife and I, we've got a prenup on the coffee machine. <laughs> Very Anything good. ever happens she gets the coffee machine. <laughs>
2: right. It was, yeah, it's good good to set the expectations early. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, um, what about protecting assets? What about if you're going into a relationship and you do have some assets? Mm-hmm. I mean, how soon do you reveal those assets? How do you protect them just in case, you know? I mean, there's obviously time frame involved as well, but the background on this question mm. is a friend of mine his daughter's um, recently inherited some money from their grandfather mm-hmm. and via the financial planner, he set up their affairs. They're, I mean, they're still not 20 yet, so but they're very well set up and they're very well protected against relationship problems.
2: Yeah, so that's the, the thing. Identify who you can talk to to get some help Guidance and advice on this. So, a financial advisor is a really good place to start, but also a lawyer, because there are different um, ways that you can approach this. And I'm just going to put it out there I am not a family lawyer. Um, So, (laughs) do chat to them. But I guess an interesting place to start is that. It really depends on the length of your relationship, the seriousness of your relationship as to how vulnerable those assets are. If you're in a de facto relationship, something that's quite committed, and then you have a relationship breakdown and there's a financial separation, the family law court doesn't just like look at, everything that you have and split it down the line 50-50. that's a really common misconception. What they'll look at is, you know, what did each of you bring to the relationship? What did you contribute during the relationship? And, you know, are there any other factors considered, like are there children to provide for and things like that? But one thing you can do is obviously, A, have a conversation with your partner about how you want to manage your finances, but there is things like binding financial agreements available. More commonly known as prenups, I think you mentioned that (laughs) earlier, which is you know thanks to all those American movies, because a binding financial agreement is not something you just do before you get married. You can put a binding financial agreement in place during a relationship or even when a relationship ends. And basically what it is, is an agreement between you and your partner about how you want to divide your assets should the relationship break down. And to have a binding financial agreement, you both need to seek independent legal advice um, and come up with a, a contract basically on how you want things to be divided in the event it ends. So that's a really like good way to kind of shore these things up. But then you can look at different structures as well to protect assets. I think like even if you don't have any significant assets, I do think for an individual, women in particular, ensuring that you always have control of your income is like one of the best things you can do to protect yourself. So making sure that your income comes into your own account and you choose where it goes. Um, And I always think it's good to have a little OMG account, um, emergency savings or rainy day savings, just, you know, in case you need to pack up and shoot through, so to speak. <laughs> the, so. Uh, the FU account. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's another name. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Love's not all bad though. When people can pull their resources and pull in the same direction, it can be great for finances and investment as well.
2: Absolutely. I think- Let's look know, at the positive. The positives. Yeah. Look, as a married woman, I can say that, you know, I I love working together with my husband towards our common goals and pooling our resources. And, you know, particularly when it comes to things like starting a family, um, you know, biologically, there's some things that only a woman can do. So, you know, thinking about- um, I, I really appreciate like talking to my husband around, okay, cool, when we start a family, you know, how are we going to navigate this? It's going to be an impact to me personally in terms of work and finances. How do we address that as a team and try and compensate that and sort of move forward together? And that's just like one example, but yeah, you can actually become quite a unified team and just think double the income to pool and invest, giddy up.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and you are investing together?
2: We are, yeah. I mean, I'd say the family home has been A big investment or one might argue that's a consumption good but Mm. that's obviously been a big goal for us and uh, just last year we bought our first house together we had a unit now onto a house which is very exciting uh, especially to say that in sydney and so right now for us you know paying down that and building up some cash buffers if there are any rugrats that come along is a big priority but outside of that we do invest together it's funny we kind of take a two-pronged approach i'm more into like etfs and funds. He's not such an active investor, but he does like investing in direct shares and taking like uh, particular positions on companies, long-term investments, but he likes that more direct approach. So kind of as a team, we have fun comparing and contrasting and, and doing it together. But we always come together for those big investment goals, even though we still have independence on what I call fund money or he calls the beer money and emergency savings. We keep those separate as well, but that's how we come together as a team. Yeah. Oh,
3: that's nice. Sorry, it's a bit off topic here. But yeah, sure. <laughs> is, is, is it basically the equities that you're investing investing in at the moment? or there are other sectors or asset classes that you're looking at?
2: Yeah, I take a pretty diversified approach. It's probably the old financial advisor in me. So Mm. it depends on what the purpose of the investment is. So I'll, I'll use an example. So not using this investment anymore, but when I was building up my first home deposit, I was invested in a range of equities, property, property assets, listed property assets, as well as bonds and cash because my goal at the time was a sort of a six year goal, I'd figured out it'd probably take me about six years to build up that first deposit. Uh, Definitely a marathon, not a sprint building up a home deposit. And so, you know, that was what I would call a more conservative investment approach, but it was appropriate for that goal um, to have more conservative investment assets in there such as your bonds and your cash because
3: of the time horizon Because of the
2: time presumably. horizon yep. exactly mm. whereas my superannuation well it's still a long time till i get to touch that bad boy so i i'm a little bit more biased towards growth investments like equities with my super fund so i take a very goals-based approach to where i put my money because for me the way i look at investing is it's a means to an end not an end in itself so I look at, you know, what do I want to use this money for? Is it something shorter term like a home deposit or is it, you know, education funds or something else? Or is it something quite long-term like retirement, which is um, still a good while away. So, yeah, depending on what that is, is, depends where I invest my funds.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot,
3: So Betsy, you run a financial wellness boot camp. What are some of the common issues around investing and money that come up with clients and I guess especially women?
2: Yeah, oh gosh, we could <laughs> talk about so many things. I think one of the biggest ones to overcome is actually mindset. Feeling like money is something that people can be really proficient and good at managing, that they can become an investor, that they can become financially independent. That's probably one of the biggest things is like, that confidence piece and that capability piece. And, and that's what my boot camp's all about is, is a lot about mindset and then education. I kind of liken it to teaching people how to fish. I, I want to educate them on the foundational concepts so they can go and make more informed decisions when they're out in the world or making their money decisions, or if they're working with an advisor, like a financial advisor, that they can come into it with more confidence and knowledge. The biggest thing on investing is that people think, it's really complicated and that you need to be an expert stock picker to invest and that you need lots of money to invest. So I absolutely spend a lot of time dispelling that myth and actually spending time talking to people about how you know investing is just a means to an end, not an end in itself, that it's about your goals and that lifestyle that you want to create or that legacy you want to create or the business you want to start, whatever it is and aligning your investing to your goals to facilitate the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. And we have a lot of fun. We, we learn how to be a cash flow queen because basically I have three rules for money, make money, keep money, multiply money. They're kind of the three themes I always talk about. So the make money is like, what can you do to increase your income through either education or side hustles? And then the keep money is, you know, what can you do to spend more aligned with your values and more mindfully? And then what are things that you can do to save money um, effectively and automating? I spend a lot of time talking to people about creating spending plans and then automating your money management because you want it to just happen. You don't want to have the temptation of having to move things around and like, oh, maybe I won't this month. But you also don't want to have that cognitive load of having to like check in with your money every day and move this. And do that and it's exhausting. And women are pretty busy. Um, I'm gonna gonna put it out there. Everyone's pretty busy. So, you know, what can you do? I can't believe how
3: hard people work (laughs) these days in some of these jobs, you know.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, you know, you think about all the things you've gotta do. Eat well, do your job, stay fit, keep Mm -hmm. all your friends connected, stay sane and manage your money and become a boss. Like, It's a lot. It's a lot. So wherever you can systemize your success and um, money's a really good place, you can do that.
3: Yeah. So what are some of the misconceptions that they come? I mean, do you hear hear anyone come in and you go, oh, my God, we're going to have to go a long way back with this person?
2: Um, I'm just reflecting on a client I worked with recently who had the view like I can't invest until I'm married, that was the one and I was like, says who? <laughs> so I did a bit of a dispelling there. I think one of the biggest things that people don't think about is what could go wrong. I think we have like a positivity bias. So they don't consider things like emergency savings, like how would I cope if I lost my job or if, a, you know, global pandemic struck, if, you know, I broke a tooth or the car broke down or something like that. But then also not thinking about, And not spending time talking about um, insurances, for example. Most of us will insure our car, right, an asset that's worth on average in Australia $36,000, whereas I think it's only about like Don't quite quote me, but like 30 something percent of us don't insure our own income. But if you think about the money that you earn over a lifetime, if you're like 25 years old and earning 80,000, that's many millions of dollars over a lifetime. So if you were to treat that like an asset, like surely that's something that you would want to insure over and above something worth $36,000. I'm not saying cancel your car insurance, by the way, guys, but I'm just <laughs> saying consider income protection as a way to shore up your lifestyle against life's little curveballs.
3: So this question, we've started talking about this before we recorded. Mm. Um, why do women take less of an interest in money than blokes? I mean, I know this podcast, it's like, only 30% of the people listening are women. Yeah. But women are taking more of an interest in money and investment, aren't they?
2: Oh, yeah. There is a shift in this area. And I'm, as you can tell, very excited about it. I mean...
3: A proselytizer for yeah,
2: it. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm so thrilled. But I really just feel like women are coming into their own right now. And there's more and more women looking to create financial independence and abundance for themselves. And you know what? Like, Women are 47% of the workforce here in Australia. We make 80% of the purchasing decisions. We contribute $5 trillion globally to the global wealth pool every year. That's according to Boston Consulting Group, which is actually outpacing the growth of any other segment in the world. And what's interesting is in the next two decades, women will inherit 70% of the the world's global wealth. So right now here in Australia, women control 33% of the nation's wealth, which is about 1.5 trillion. So it's still quite a bit less. And I would put my money on that statistic increasing to say that more women will be controlling money in future generations. And you can see that millennial women in particular are taking a more active interest in their money Again, from Boston Consulting Group, they did some research recently around women taking the lead on financial decisions um, in a relationship. And what they found is millennial women that are married, 66% of them will take the lead on financial decisions versus 29% in um, women of the boomer generation by comparison. So you can see that's a significant jump in just a few generations. So whilst I think traditionally women haven't been invested. And look, there's a really good reason for that. Chuck finance into Google, Phil. And I tell you in images, you get a sea of blue, lots of charts, very serious men in suits. And you're like, where are all the women? And there's a lot of research right now showing um, some great research by Oliver Wyman. I was reading the other day saying that women are the most underserved cohort in financial services and companies that don't seek to better engage and service the needs of women are actually missing out on a $700 billion opportunity per annum globally. And so that was a global statistic. And I was like, what what is that in Australia? And I found some research from Kantar that said that it's about $5.4 billion per annum here in Australia, if your financial services brand skews male, that you're missing out on that market opportunity. So Women are a force to be reckoned with. They are up and coming. They're more interested. And I really hope to see more financial services taking an active interest in this cohort, but also developing more inclusive products and services. Because, you know, let's think about superannuation and I'm probably going on a little tangent, but it's an interesting thing. So superannuation was developed in the 20th century based on a man working in a managerial position in a government office for 40 years women's financial lives are actually far more complex than that they don't just start work at 18 and you know keep going through till 65 and when they retire and i'd actually say a lot of men's lives don't follow that trajectory either But women in particular, they face a number of hurdles when it comes to financial well-being and have a much more complex journey financially. So first of all, we've got the gender pay gap, which in Australia I think is still at a pesky 14%, super annoying, won't go away. But also women are more likely to take career breaks. And so what this means is that they're earning less, they've got interrupted careers, so therefore they retire with less money, which is problematic because they live longer. And for career breaks, one thing I would say for anyone considering a career break is take the time to plan for it financially. Studies show that for women, they typically take a career break at age 33, and the compounded impact of that career break on their superannuation balance is about $160,000 in retirements lost because of that break. And you can't avoid them, um, particularly if you want to, you know, care for others, children, parents. But what you can do is be proactive in planning for that break, putting money aside. Trying to contribute to your super if you can while you're on that break, or maybe if you've got a spouse doing some co contributions to offset the financial impact on your retirement. Rant over. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell I'm passionate about this subject?
3: (laughs) So let's talk about financial advisors. I mean, part of doing this podcast is everyone seems to be saying, okay, you can take things into your own hands, Mm -hmm. Um, you can do your own investing, you don't need financial advisors. However, And this is even after the Banking Royal Commission has given many financial advisors a bad name, but there's plenty of good ones out there as well. And for some people, having a financial advisor is more like having a coach and it can help them. Even though it might cost a little bit more upfront, it can be a good thing as well for guiding your investment decisions.
2: Yes, and that's the role you want your advisor to play is sort of coach, enabler and real partner in your wealth Creation journey. I think, you know, that industry has undergone such a transformation in the last five, 10, 15 years. Because, you know, when you look back to where financial advice came from, it came from, you know, people dangling stock tips and making money on sales commission. And it was all very like gung ho. Um, let's make money, ra-da-da. It was
3: it, Yeah, it was glossy brochures at yeah. um, retiree workshops, wasn't exactly, it? Exactly, <laughs> exactly.
2: But, you know, we've had the future of financial advice reforms and we've also had the Hain Royal Commission. And so now the way that advisors are expected to act is in their customer's best interest, which is a good thing, should have been that way all the time, <laughs> but they're legally obligated to do that. And, in fact, the skills required to be a successful financial advisor today is to be able to coach, guide and advise people on what to do to achieve the best financial outcomes. And, you know, you need skills like empathy, intuitiveness, good listening skills, because you need to ask people what their goals are. So
3: being able to relate to women.
2: Yeah, exactly. Annoyingly, it's still only 20% of financial advisors here in Australia are women. I feel like the industry really needs to have a rebrand and hopefully um, there's some great people out there doing work to do that. But If you're working with a financial advisor, here's four things that you can kind of look for to judge if they're a good financial advisor. So... First of all, a good financial advisor should spend time understanding like what are your goals? Because as I've said before, investing isn't an end in itself. It's to facilitate something, be it retirement, like I said, education, legacy, whatever those things are for you. So they should really be talking to you about what is your goals and understanding what are the steps you need to take to attain them more so than just talking about your investment returns. That's a very important part of the picture, but it's not the whole picture. And so when they talk to you, they should be talking about, you know, what you're going to do in context of those goals and all your updates should be in context of how are you tracking to those goals. So that's point number one. Second thing that they should be doing is, taking into consideration your total wealth. So not just looking at a slither of your portfolio and and how they're going to invest that you want it to be very holistic. So they should be asking you lots of questions about you. Hey, Phil, tell me about your family. Tell me about your lifestyle. You know, what assets do you have here and there? How do you spend your money and making recommendations based on that really holistic view Rather than, yeah, just being like, hey, cool, how much have you got to invest? Great, we're going to do this, this and that. They also should be framing risk in a way that relates to those goals. Because like the example I gave earlier, depending on what you're aiming for, your risk profile should vary depending on those goals. It shouldn't be sort of like, a oh, I've just got this overall preference. So um, they should talk to you about risk in context of those goals and adjust it to help ensure that you're going to actually achieve those goals. And then the final step is like, that's when you start talking about investing. So talking to you about like what investments they think will help you achieve those goals and you should be able to get a second opinion on their investments and kind of get the same endorsement so you can do that by literally taking it to someone else for a second opinion or they should be able to provide you with independent research and the justification behind the investments that they've recommended for you and like you were saying at the beginning, a financial advisor is not for everyone, but they can be really good in helping you. If you don't have a lot of confidence, you don't have a lot of time, Or if you're trying to weigh up multiple decisions at once, like, you know, should I put this money in super or pay down my house? And what's the effect if we have another kid? What's Mm. the effect if I retire at 50 versus 60? They're fantastic for that kind of financial modeling and dealing with complex situations because they look at the tax, the investment, and all the other things in between to make sure you've got a really solid plan to get you where you want to go.
3: And a bit of legal as well, don't they? Yeah,
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they'll often like have different people within their team that they mm. can refer to. So it's, like I said, it's a very holistic advice, but unfortunately it is quite expensive. So one of the issues I see right now with the industry is that it's become so expensive that a lot of everyday people can't get that good quality advice that they need, which is one of the reasons I'm a financial coach is that I don't want to give people advice. I want to educate them so that they can kind of self-direct for a period until that point in time where they can afford that good quality advice.
3: Well, one of my bugbears as well is Mm. asset allocation. And that's Mm why financial advisors are experts in as well, because Mm. it's not just the share market that you can invest in. And there's a whole bunch of other assets that you can invest in via the share market, via ETFs on the share market as well. And this is really important to know, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is. When I do my investing sessions, I spend a lot of time talking to my clients about the 10 foundational concepts that you've got to understand and assets and asset allocation is is one of them. And yeah, the share market's not just for shares. I know. Would you believe it? Crazy, huh? <laughs> but there's so many different things that you can invest in. Bonds, Property listed property assets, um, you've got your shares, you've also got, you know, alternatives and commodities and all sorts of things out there. And
3: so, what's the idea of having these different assets in your portfolio?
2: Well, they all perform differently at different times. You know, if you think about your more defensive assets like cash and bonds, they protect your portfolio from things like volatility and drop in value. They tend to be more income producing assets, but tend not to grow in value, versus your growth assets like property and shares, which, you know, have great potential for growth and income but tend to bounce around a bit more so getting that asset allocation and that blend right is actually one of the biggest drivers of investing success over and above which individual investments you made so the the stat everyone talks about is asset allocation drives 80 percent of investment returns over and above the investment itself
3: betsy thank you very much for joining me today
2: thank you phil it's been such a pleasure
3: Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Soulos for music production with that special Greek delicious flavour. Remember, music always flows even when the money won't.